obviously they're very easy to ignore. They're wicked stepmothers or, or, or uh, doddering fools of a father, you know, like Bell has in Beauty and the Beast. He's a fool. How can you respect him? He's just, he's a crackpot, right? And, and in every case, parents and authorities are just fools. They're just out of touch. They, they just don't know what's going on. And, and they have expectations for you, but you really can't pay attention to those. And, and you'll find yourself in a whole society of people who live and think a certain way that may not always support your own very unique means of self-expression. But when push comes to shove, here's the message, your own happiness, your own comfort, your own affirmation of who you are and what you want to do is more important than anything or anybody else. Now, occasionally, I'm painting with a broad brush, obviously, occasionally you'll get secondary themes of sacrifice and service and delayed gratification and you'll get rebukes against, against selfishness here and there. You know, I'm, I'm not including the Incredibles movies, by the way. Those are exceptional. Those are off to the side. But everything else, everything else is, is compromised. No. But, but you'll, get these, you'll get these little good themes and these little good messages, but somehow it always wraps back around. Always it comes back to be yourself, however you define yourself. And so is it any wonder that the most sexually confused, the most morally and psychologically adrift generation ever in Western civilization is it, any, is it any wonder that it's a generation of people who've been brought up under this dogma, a generation well-discipled in the religion of be-yourself-ism, you do you. That, that's the new universal creed, you do you. It even appears in, the, uh, in a copy of a, of a low-effort Diet Coke commercial that aired during the Super Bowl. An actress boldly states as she walks out of a little uh, convenience store. She said, look, here's the thing about Diet Coke. It's delicious. It makes me feel good. Life is short. If you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up. If you want to run a marathon, I mean, that sounds super hard, but okay. I mean, just do you, whatever that is. And if you're in a mood for a Diet Coke, have a Diet Coke. That commercial is such a relief to me because I always wondered if I had Coke's license to live however I wanted. And now that I know that I have Coke's permission to live however I want, well, now I have it. Complete license to do me courtesy of Coke. Well, well the subtext in that, in that commercial is fill in the blank. You know, they, they, it's, you know, it's not about yurts and it's not about marathons, right? Those aren't controversial. It's about pretending to be another sex than what you are, or maybe pretending to be another species than what you are. Just do you. Now, we can rant and rave and pull our hair out, but the world never gets to where it is on its own. The culture goes wherever the church has led it. Everything that our society has, it borrowed from the church. And while the, while the world certainly is well-practiced in taking good things and twisting them, we have given them some things over the past couple hundred years that they didn't need to modify all that much. They got it from us, and they really didn't need to tweak it. Going back to at least the Second Great Awakening, maybe a little bit further, the Christian church has led people in a religion based on personal emotional stimulation. That, that is the American religion, personal emotional stimulation. We've trained people to grade our message, not based on whether God said it, not based on whether it's true, but based on whether it feels good. 
How does it make me feel? If it makes me feel good, it must be right. However, if it offends me, or if I disagree with it, or if it makes me uncomfortable, or if it asks something of me, if it looks like work, if I can't simply absorb it, if it doesn't affirm me where I am just as I am, then it must be false. Because we want the kind of religion that stimulates our emotions. Now, maybe we, we love that hellfire and brimstone sermon. We like that emotionally charged uh, uh, sermon filled with judgment because we want to make sure the guy next to us hears that, right? We want to make sure that they're getting it. You know, it's not for me. Obviously, it's not for me. It's never about me. But in the end, it has to meet my needs, where I am, serve my interests, entertain my senses, and ask very little of me in the process. Now, I, 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 I point back to the Second Great Awakening, but that kind of religion didn't just appear with tent revivals and itinerant evangelists of the, of the Second Great Awakening. One of, the, one of the earliest examples of this kind of religion is at the foot of Mount Sinai. You know well the story. When Moses was at the top of the mountain, communing with God, the people at the bottom of the mountain felt that their needs weren't being served, and they desired to shape God into uh, the, the, the God who delivered them, who is uh, Yahweh. They, they desired to shape him into something more relevant, something more approachable, a God who was a projection of their own warped thoughts, a projection of their own ignorance and their own idolatry. And what they came up with is a golden calf, right? Because that's what we, if we all said, what does God look like? We'd say, I don't know, kind of like a baby cow who's gold, right? That's the kind of God that, but, but somehow they ended up with a golden calf. Rather than patiently waiting for Moses, they impatiently dove headfirst into worshiping that golden calf with drunkenness and debauchery. And when Moses came down the mountain, there we have a striking contrast because what Moses is carrying for a while are the inscribed words of God on tablets of stone. The very clearly articulated, uh, uh, defined will of God in writing. What's coming down the mountain is the word and it's confronted with personal emotional stimulation. This, this wild debauchery. So we've got this striking contrast between word-based worship, the lawful obedience that pleases God, and the kind of idolatrous worship that is base and sensual and emotionally manipulating and stimulating, centered in and around the immediate gratification of someone who's just pleasing him or herself. Now, why is it, what has this got to do with Ephesians? Well, this is relevant to our study in Ephesians because Paul has brought us to Sinai. Just as God mightily delivered Egypt from, uh, uh, just as God mightily delivered Israel from Egypt, he, he mightily delivered them from slavery. Paul, in the same way, he spent the first three chapters of his letter to the Ephesians describing the great deliverance, the great heritage, the riches that have been afforded us by our mighty Savior Jesus. And then after he, he talks about our deliverance, Paul goes into this long section where he provides some new covenant perspectives on God's law and, and the establishment of God's kingdom. Now, just as at Sinai, God set up right worship for Israel. He provided them the system of the tabernacle. He gave them the law code. He, he gave them the Ten Commandments. Starting there, he then ordered their society. He provided structure for priests and kings and prophets and families and gave them, gave them room to thrive. Then he equipped them 
and commission them to go take the land of promise. So one way to read Ephesians and, and to kind of follow Paul's train of thought is to see what he's doing is, is following that outline of events at Mount Sinai. And he's making new covenant applications. See, where Moses got instructions for the tabernacle, Paul talks about the church being this new building, this building erected on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus is the cornerstone. But now this new house has no dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. See, Moses got uh, plans for the tabernacle. Now, now Paul talks about the new tabernacle, the new temple. Moses got the Ten Commandments. Now Paul walks us through those commandments, as we've seen over the last several weeks, making new covenant applications, elevating and expanding on what faithfulness to the Lord Jesus means through God's law. Then Paul spends time talking about darkness and light and how we reflect the light of God and shine it in all the dark places. Well, what does that have to do? Well, remember Sinai. At Sinai, Moses came down the mountain after spending time with God, reflecting God's glory, God's light. And at that point is where Paul transitions to this command, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, why does he do that here? Why does Paul move to that at this point? Well, at Mount Sinai, they were supposed to have true worship, but what they had was a drunken, idolatrous party. And so what Paul is saying, now that I've delivered the word to you, now that I've delivered the law to you and have made new uh, covenant application, you don't respond like the people at Sinai. You don't, you don't get involved in drunken, idolatrous living. Pursue true worship, and he's going to tell us how to do that. And then from there, Paul is going to move on to the theme of mutual submission, the themes of, of relationships and family, husband to wife, uh, parent to child, master and servant. And so just like God established human government uh, at Israel, he established uh, government in Israel at Sinai. Now Paul is going to do the same thing. He's going to set up the hierarchy of the church with Jesus Christ as the head. And then Paul wraps up the letter doing what? What does he talk about in the last chapter of Ephesians? Well, he talks about the whole armor of God. Why? Well, we need to go on from Sinai, and we need to go on from the wilderness under our greater Joshua and go conquer the land of Canaan. So one way of trying to follow Paul's train of thought maybe is to think of the order of events at Sinai. I think maybe that's what, that's what triggers by the Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, triggers these thoughts as Paul writes this letter. All we're going to focus on today is that little trans transition that I just read in chapter 5, just verses 15 to 21. But uh, perhaps that, that provides uh, some of the bigger picture for, for where we are in the book, that, that Paul is putting all of the old covenant into a new covenant context. He's filtering everything through the, uh, everything through the work of Jesus, through the work of Jesus in his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. So let's pick up and let's, let's just read these few verses and begin with verse 15. Now, what has he just said? He says, because you have all this light, you have all this illumination, you have all this, this clarity in the truth and you've become light. Verse 15, see then that you work, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That word circumspectly, it's a good old English word that we should uh, reclaim and use it every day. That word circumspectly describes diligence with a sense of duty. Now, if I'm talking about diligence, it implies that there's some standard or there's some authority outside of myself that I'm conforming to. Duty implies that there's someone else that I am serving. 
So you could say walk circumspectly is the opposite of you do you. It means walking circumspectly means whatever I say and whatever I do is first in submission to God, secondly in submission to the people who are uh, in authority over me that God has put there that I'm called to obey. And thirdly, I'm walking in submission to my brother, my equal who I'm called to love and serve. And fourthly, I'm loving and serving those who are under me, those who are beneath me, those who I have responsibility for. Walking circumspectly means thinking first and foremost how my actions affect other people. Consider first, how am I loving you by insisting on this thing? How am I loving you by doing this other thing over here? How, how am I loving you and serving you by, by saying this thing? You see, all of that gets inverted in our you-do-you you society. Because in, in our world, in our society, in our generation, what makes me happy is ultimate. I don't care if it embarrasses my parents. I don't care if it pushes away my friends. I don't care if it undermines the foundations of Western civilization. I have to be true to myself. And in being true to myself, I can always find a little pocket of miserable people on the internet who support me in being true to myself. If I want to be, as a 24-year-old man, if I want to be and identify as a female My Little Pony character, which there are entire forums of people dedicated to this garbage, if I want to do that, there's a whole, there's a whole community of people who will affirm me in this because I've got to be true to myself and what cruel person would tell me that I'm not in fact a My Little Pony character. There, there are people who won't ever challenge me on my idiotic, moronic, idolatrous behavior. See, that's the opposite of circumspection. Walking circumspectly is a synonym for wisdom. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The wise man looks up ahead on the road when he walks. He makes a determination about where his actions, where his words, where his choices and thoughts are taking him. And he can see, a wise man can see the forks in the road way up ahead. And the wise man takes the correct fork because he understands the will of the Lord, which by the way is not a secret. The will of the Lord is not a secret because if we know what God loves, and if we understand what God hates, we, we know what to do. If, if we choose the wrong fork, if the wise man chooses the wrong fork somehow, he's not too proud to go back to the point where he made his error and go the other way. Another thing that's built in here, Paul says we do this because the days are evil. There's that hope built in there that no matter how bad things are, no, however, no matter how evil the days get around us, there are always opportunities. There are always new chances to do the right thing and the wise thing. Things never get so evil that there are no wise choices left. Maybe there are no comfortable choices. Maybe there are no pleasant choices. But there are always wise choices. And the wise man finds those and goes down that path. Verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, trying to follow Paul's train of thought here, he's at Mount Sinai. And when Moses came down from Sinai and he found Israel in the middle of worshiping the golden calf, in the New King James, it says the people were unrestrained. That was the word it, it used. They had turned loose 
all self-control, and all self-discipline. Now, the old King James uses the word naked. When, when Moses came down the mountain, he found them there naked. But it's naked in the sense that they had no authority. They had no covering of authority over them. And that was Aaron's shame. It, it explicitly says it was Aaron's shame that he had not restrained them or disciplined them. The Bible says they made their offering to the calf, they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now, that word play is translated in other places as mockery. Think buffoonery. Think idiocy. So the picture there is a people who had completely lost their minds in the midst of this drunken debauchery. In other words, the opposite of circumspection. It's worship and activity that is purely about personal emotional stimulation. Now that Paul has delivered God's law to us, there's an immediate need to correct our tendency to reject and forget and push aside word-based lawful obedience. And there's this tendency that we have to embrace personal emotional stimulation as a lifestyle and as a liturgy. Now, he, he, he draws out drunkenness, and this is really important as a, as, a, as, a, as a heading for all kinds of sin that fall under the same, the same kind of behavior as drunkenness. Drunkenness is a lack of self-discipline with alcohol, and, and, it, and it's, a great, it's a form of this, this foolishness. It's a good example here, but a drunkard's liturgy of life doesn't lead him to productivity. His, his habits and his lack of discipline don't lead him to productivity or increasing effort. Paul says it leads to dissipation. He puts money in a bag with holes in it. Everything he, he touches turns to dust because he's not all there. He's, when he's at work, he's not at work. When he's with his family, he's not really with his family. He's looking forward to the next drink. He's looking forward to the next time where he can get blackout drunk. His efforts and his energies are wasted in the process. Proverbs tells us that the soul of the diligent is made fat. Diligent, diligence means that, that you find something good and you stick with it day after day. You do it month after month, year after year. You become disciplined and experienced and trained. And in the process, you become wise and well off. And it doesn't matter what it is that you pick to do. If you love uh, plumbing, if you love uh, uh, engineering, if you love accounting, if you love medicine, if, if you love sales, if you love uh, driving a garbage truck, just do it every day and every day and every day and every day, any good thing you do, you diligently apply yourself, you discipline yourself, and you will enjoy the fruits of your labor. Dissipa dissipation is the opposite of that. Dissipation is the fruit of a drunken lifestyle. Whether you're literally drunk on alcohol or you're drunk on any form of personal emotional stimulation, whether it's addicted to the internet or addiction to gambling, addiction to television or food or video games or lustful pursuits or pornography or this, this, these addictions that are so prevalent, whether you're literally drunk on alcohol or drunk on these other things, being addicted to stimulation of, of this kind sends you off scrambling after this thing and that thing and the other thing over there and this thing over here, never satisfied with anything and you're always spinning your wheels. And, and all of your efforts are wasted. All your time and your resources just evaporate when you pursue the next high and the next high and the next high. And the same is true on a spiritual level. When we... Uh, 
focus our attention and diligence on the clear verbal communication of God in his word, uh, that's, that's different from this kind of drunken approach to worship and life that is disorderly, it's uncontrolled, it's unrestrained, anything goes. See, there's not a lot of difference between what what emotional manipulation uh, as a religion is not a, not a lot of difference between what's going on there and what was happening with the with the golden calf. Um, all of life becomes subjective and experiential and a search for emotional stimulation, which is why children of God, when we worship together, our our goal is not artificially stimulating your emotions. Now, certain psalms and hymns move me, and I hope they move you too. But that's not the end goal, and that's not the only goal. The purpose of of singing, as Paul's about to say, the purpose of psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs, the purpose is that God is praised, that his word is spoken out loud, that he is glorified in song, and that we are encouraging each other, and we're encouraged by his word to submit to him in faithfulness and obedience even when it doesn't feel good, even when it doesn't feel right, even when we're suffering, even when we're distressed and full of anxiety. You see the difference there? The the stimulation is not the end, but that God's word is spoken and that we are encouraged to obey and that God is praised. Uh, So we're always reforming in such a way that our worship is regulated by the Bible and is God-oriented and not self-oriented so that we are filled with the Spirit. And we've already spent time in Ephesians talking about what that means to be filled with the Spirit. That it means joining with the Spirit in His work, pushing back the darkness, shining God's light, taking dominion. Now, when we're filled with the Spirit, what does that look like? He tells us. He doesn't leave us to guess. He tells us what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to your heart in the Lord, uh, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he's not only talking about corporate worship here. He's talking about a whole life permeated by the work of the Spirit and the singing of psalms and the giving of thanks. When we studied Acts together a few years ago, I pointed out that every single time someone is filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts, what happens immediately after they're filled with the Spirit is that they speak, they sing, they preach, they proclaim, they praise. Every time someone is filled with the Spirit, something comes out of their mouth. So that the Holy Spirit who inspired His Holy Word fills us, He breathes His breath of life into our lungs, and it comes back out as sanctified speech. It comes back out as God's Word. You can look it up. Every single time someone is filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts, they speak, they sing, they make melody, they speak God's Word. So when we're filled with the Spirit, what comes out? When we're filled with the Spirit, Paul says, we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody, and giving thanks. So we're avoiding, on the one hand, a drunken, undisciplined, unrestrained life And we concentrate ourselves on the word of God that governs everything. And we speak it and we sing it and we say it and we pray it and we talk it. He says we speak to one another, singing and making melody through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Are these three different kinds of songs? Are these three different kinds of hymns? Uh, Are they three different kinds that we find in the scriptures? Maybe it's the book of Psalms. 
And there's the other hymns and psalms that we find in Scripture, uh, other hymns and songs like uh, the ones that are in the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke. They have, there's Mary's song and Zechariah's song and, and others. Uh, and, and then there's, there are other prayers of the saints throughout the Scriptures uh, and, and songs of the angels that are all good for us to sing. Is, is the, are those the divisions or are they three divisions in the Psalter, which some commentators have said? I'm not going to chase that all down here. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to get into that argument other than to agree that first and foremost, the Psalms are the foundation of our understanding of God's will and His world. And, and the Psalms shape our conversation and our worship. The Psalter must be at the center of our worship. It's how we know we're filled with the Spirit when we sing His words. And so Paul paints a picture here of a people who are always singing with each other and to each other. You know, that may sound really weird. We don't live in a musical, right? We don't, we don't just, you know, get together and start breaking out and singing and dancing, right? We don't, we don't do that. But that's not an uncommon thing throughout history. You know, not the musical part, but, but singing all the time. Men used to sing in public as they worked. They sang together. As they traveled together, they sang together. They made music together at night around the fire, around the, around the hearth in the home, or sang together in the pubs. We just don't do that in the United States. People don't get together to sing. Even though, you know, before every ball game, we insist on having a national anthem, it's a performance, and people just mumble along at best. Think about what it would sound if 50,000 people at a baseball game were all singing all together, full-throated, as loud as they could. Or, or, or 100,000 people at a college football game, if they all sang out together. But, but we have this weird musical sterility. Men don't sing. We, we have the radio on, or we have Muzak, or we have elevator music playing in our offices, but men don't sing while they work. We listen passively because we have this orientation toward music solely as entertainment. We don't engage it. We don't make it. Somehow it's manly to say, oh, I don't sing. That's a very manly thing to say. I, I, I don't sing. I'm, I'm not a singer. Okay. We live in a non-singing culture, but Paul's message rebukes that and says it's a whole lot better for us to live in a singing culture where people aren't afraid to throw themselves into song. You and I haven't been brought up singing that way. We've been brought up with the radio and with MTV and with CDs and MP3s. But we have to change that and sing the Psalms and internalize them so that we're internalizing the words of the Spirit. Then when we pray and sing, we sing God's word out to each other on a day-to-day basis. We incorporate biblical language into our language. And this way it creates wisdom in the world. It creates clarity and an economy of language. You notice that none of the Psalms, uh, none of the Psalms say, Lord, we just, Lord, we just, Lord, we just, Lord, we just, right? None of the Psalms pray pray that way, right? None of them them come off that way. Why, where do we come up with these little affectations in prayer? Where do we come up with saying little silly things like, oh, 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 Father, we, Father God, we, Father God, we, Father God, we, Father God, we, you know, we, we pick up these little things why do we get this? We're, because we're not educated in God's word. We're not singing the Psalms. And so we don't, we don't think like God thinks. And we're not talking like God wants us to speak. 
because we, we've adopted this, this anti-Psalter, you know, very individualistic, hyper-individualized kind of worship. But singing the Psalms and incorporating biblical language into our language creates wisdom in the world, and by that we take dominion because we, we don't want a golden calf worship based only on emotional stimulation. Instead, we want word-based worship psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and we want them in daily life giving us wisdom and giving us perspective on the world last verse 21 he says as we do this submitting to one another in the fear of god and here's this transition we're going to get to this next week he's beginning that next longer section on the ordering of society under god all the submission and subjection and the hierarchical organization of family and community is based on this primary principle of mutual submission, submitting to each other first. In the church and in the kingdom, we don't have a pagan view of a chain of command where those in charge make crazy, ridiculous demands and they exhibit no patience and no love or duty toward those under them. That's, that's heathen. That's not the way the church is organized. That's not the way Christian families live and work and operate. In Christian families and in Christian societies, which are ordered by God's law and wisdom, whoever is the head, whoever has the responsibility of leadership, never has absolute authority. He never has absolute control. He must fear God. God is over everyone and we are all his servants. And so everyone from the king to the chambermaid has to answer to God for how they serve and love those under them. At the same time, he's given us these various roles of responsibility and these various roles of authority. And he has, has defined how we serve as, uh, as husbands and wives and children and parents and masters and servants. We, we always serve within our role. So the husband always serves as a husband. The wife always serves as a wife. The parent as a parent, the child as a child. And so in order for the husband to practice mutual submission with his wife, he doesn't stop being a husband. He still is the husband. He still is her head, but he must study his wife. He still has to find out what she needs, what she wants, and, and do those things to the best of his ability. With great care and skill and wisdom, the head serves those he is responsible for, which ordinarily encourages them toward greater willingness and cheerfulness to be faithful in their role. Where do we get this? Well, we get this from Jesus. Jesus didn't come into the world just to give a bunch of orders and, and fly off on a chariot, right? He, he, Jesus comes and he gives and he serves and he heals and he feeds and he washes his disciples' feet and then he dies for them. That's the context for everything that is to follow in, in Paul's instruction on husbands and wives and children and parents and masters and servants. But every syllable of these few verses, everything that I've read here, every syllable is a challenge and an answer to the dogma and the creed of you just do you. Be yourself, live for yourself, be your own person, be true to yourself and pursue your own temporary, fleeting, ephemeral, uh, ephemeral, emotional stimulation at all costs. Whatever it costs for you to do you, do it. God's word says the opposite. God's word says walk with diligence to an outside authority and a sense of duty to those you are called to love. Don't be a fool, be wise. Don't get drunk on any form of emotional stimulation. Be filled with the spirit. Speak and sing the Psalms and give thanks. Let God's word shape your words and your thoughts. 
and submit to each other in families and in the church and in society. You see, I can't do me and be faithful to God. That's impossible. Those are absolutely incompatible. I cannot do me and be faithful. I cannot be myself because myself is selfish. Myself is unloving. Myself is hateful. I can't be myself. I have to be like Jesus. Myself isn't worth being around. I've got to be like Jesus. And furthermore, everything I do affects my family and everything my family does affects me. Everything I do affects you in this congregation and everything you do affects me. We are knit together. I am therefore forbidden from putting my cares and my pleasure before you. And you are forbidden from putting yourself before all of us. So people of God, brothers and sisters, reject the lies of Satan. Reject this present world order. Reject this wicked generation and live. Walk by the Spirit. Walk in wisdom. Be filled with His Spirit. Push back the darkness and take dominion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that these would not be things that we'd forget just as soon as we walk out the door because it's really easy to be selfish. It's really easy to be self-saturated and self-centered and self-absorbed. It's so easy. That's our default. Father, by your Holy Spirit, give us the power and the strength and the courage to love each other as you have called us to do so in in imitation of your son's love for us. Father, grant us this grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.